I was asked this morning for our chapel time if I would speak to you from a very, very important passage of Scripture. And I'd like to take your Bibles, uh, have you take your Bible and turn to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. I believe with all my heart, and I trust that you do as well, that the Bible, the Word of God, is sufficient for every spiritual need. Did you get that? I believe that the Word of God is sufficient for every spiritual need. Now you say, well, I think that's pretty obvious. Don't most Christians believe that? Well, I think if you ask them that, everybody would say, yes, well, we believe the Bible is sufficient for every spiritual need. But if you ask them to describe how that fleshes out in their attitudes and their living, they might have a little more difficulty. Let me tell you what I mean. You probably know that I get to travel around a little bit and I attend a lot of pastor's conferences. I meet with pastors all over America. This summer we were involved in pastor's conferences in the East Coast. Probably up to a thousand different pastors over a period of a couple of weeks. We have pastor's conferences at Grace Church. In fact, next week we'll have 250 pastors coming in. Uh, in addition, we'll have our hundred seminary students there. This is pretty routine for me to interact with pastors. What is curious about it is most all the pastors that I deal with, uh, most all of them that we speak to or uh, have seminars with, would agree that the Bible is sufficient for everything in the spiritual realm. But when you ask them about building the church and about how they style their ministry, it's very interesting to find out that many of them are deeply involved in reading books on management. I'm really amazed at that. It's almost as if they're saying, well, we couldn't expect to find everything we need to know out of the Bible, so we're getting it out of these books on management. And pastors are really into things like uh, the one-minute manager. Have any of you seen that little book called The One-Minute Manager? It's supposed to tell you how to be a successful manager in little one-minute exercises that you do. Um, there's another book you know of in, in Search of Excellence. There are books on corporate culture. There are books on all kinds of management techniques put out by people who've analyzed IBM, Xerox, General Motors, General Electric, and on and on and on. And all of these techniques of corporate success are the new preoccupation for pastors. Now, admittedly, they maybe have found some things that are helpful, but what concerns me is at the core of that is a sense that the Bible just isn't sufficient for the stuff you need to build the church. In fact, one man said to me, one pastor said, what's the secret to the success of Grace Community Church? I said, the teaching of the Word of God. He said, don't give me that. I tried it. It doesn't work. What's your real secret? Now, if you ask him if he believes in the authority of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture, he'd say yes, but it doesn't flesh out that way. He, he feels that for some reason there's an inadequacy relative to the teaching of God's Word on the subject of building the church. When in fact, if we think about it at all, we must know that if the Lord designed the church and gave us this to guide us in the building of the church, it is sufficient. Another thing that concerns me is the area of politics. I recently heard a well-known evangelical say, there will never be revival in America until we have a Christian Congress. There will never be revival in America until we have a Christian Congress. 
So he has left his pastorate and he is now lobbying in Washington to try to bring about a Christian Congress. The underlying view is that we could accomplish through politics what we could never accomplish through teaching the Word of God. And yet this man would probably lay his life on the line for the truthfulness of Scripture. For some reason, he just doesn't believe that spending your life teaching the Bible to people will have the impact that spending your life in politics might have. Now, either the Bible is sufficient to bring a revival or it isn't. And if I read Nehemiah right, they brought the book and they had a revival. I'm convinced that a Christian Congress has no relationship to anything in the, in the kingdom of God, one way or another. But what a commentary on evangelicalism that people actually believe you could accomplish through politics what you can't seem to accomplish through the Bible. That, you see, is a view that says the scripture is not sufficient. Let me give you another illustration. I'm always bothered when I read about some, uh, some new method of evangelism, like the, the rock singer who said, I want to be sexy in a godly way in order to reach my culture. Well, what are you saying? Are you saying that the Bible isn't adequate? God needs a sexy rock singer to do what the Bible doesn't have the power to do? Or somebody comes along and says, well, you can't just give people the gospel. You have to kind of sneak up on them. You've got to, be, uh, you've got to have sort of a technique. Uh, you've got to figure out a, an angle. So what they develop is the, the health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine. Jesus wants you happy. Jesus wants you healthy. Jesus wants you rich. Jesus wants to increase your profits. Jesus wants you to have a new car. He wants you to, to dress well. And, and you get that whole prosperity package because if you can get people to buy into prosperity, they might uh, buy into the gospel too. It's, uh, it's necessary to be subtle. Otherwise, the Word of God isn't going to have an impact. That is a view of Scripture that says you can't just teach the Word of God. People aren't going to buy that. You've got to be much more subtle. You've got to dress up like Striper and do your gig. And that's how you communicate the gospel. If you don't have some kind of tool like that, it isn't going to fly. I talked to a guy the other night. I went in a store to buy a, a piece of furniture for our house. And this guy uh, said to me, what do you do? I said, oh, I'm a pastor of a church. And and he said, oh, he said, I used to be a church music director, but I left that. Oh, I said, really, what do you do now? He says, well, I'm launching out on a, on a music career. I want to be in show business. And I said, really? I said, that's interesting. You've left the, the church and the ministry to go into show business. I said, uh, uh, what, for what reason? Well, he said, I've learned one thing. You can't just get up there and give people the gospel. Just imagine if I become a world-famous singer and draw all those crowds. Imagine how powerful the message will be. My answer was, the message couldn't be any more powerful. It's so powerful now. They can totally transform people. What are you saying about the gospel? Are you saying the poor gospel limps along until you make it big? And then I always look at the field of psychoanalytical theory, you know, where everybody says, if you don't know how to psychoanalyze people, you certainly can't help them. We went through a lawsuit, and the whole goal of the lawsuit, the whole court approach against Grace Community Church and me, was to try to show that anybody who tried to use the Bible to help people at their deepest need, the level of their deepest need, is an absolute idiot. Everybody knows you got to use psychology. And now what happens in seminaries across the country? They're chucking out part of the Bible curriculum and bringing in psychology curriculum. Churches, instead of hiring evangelists, are hiring 
psychologists and counselors because somebody has bought the lie that there's this sort of area of information that's outside the purview of scripture and it's the real key to helping people with their deep problems that's just not true now I'm pointing out those areas because I think what they tell us is that there's a lot of distrust in the sufficiency of the scripture but I'm convinced that the Word of God is absolutely sufficient. To show you how sufficient it is, look at verses 7 to 9 in Psalm 19. 7 to 9. Just get this. Just listen as, as it goes by. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes... The fear or the worship of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and therefore comprehensively right. We'll stop at that point. Without question, that is the most monumental statement ever made on the sufficiency of Scripture. An absolutely comprehensive treatment of Scripture's adequacy and sufficiency. Would you please notice that one phrase is repeated six times. And that is the phrase, of the Lord, of the Lord, of the Lord, of the Lord, six times. That is to say that the source of Scripture is Yahweh the covenant God. God is the source of Scripture. We should expect then, if God made man, and God wrote the manual on man's operation, that it would in fact be sufficient. Notice that Scripture has six titles in this wonderful section. It is called the Law, the Testimony, the statutes, the commandment, the fear, and the judgments. You can look at Scripture from all those different angles. And what does he mean by that? Well, calling Scripture the law simply looks at Scripture as instruction for man. This is God's law for the life of man. Calling Scripture testimony simply says that it is the testimony of the Lord about himself. It is his self-revelation, his self-disclosure. Calling it statutes simply identifies it as precepts for living. The scripture is filled with precepts for living. Calling, calling the scripture commandment means that it is sovereign. It is in decree obligatory. It is God telling us what we must do. Calling it fear is simply a euphemism for worship. It is the manual on how to worship God, how to adore Him, how to reverence Him, how to honor Him. And calling the scripture verdicts simply means, or judgments, that it is the judgments from the divine bench given by the judge of all the earth. Scripture is all of that. So you have by those titles a sort of a composite look at the facets of scripture. It is instruction for life. It is witness to God himself. It is precepts for living, living sovereign decrees to be obeyed, principles of worship and verdicts in the regard to life. All of those things are true of Scripture. Now, here's what I want you to focus on in the brief time we have left. Look at this. There are six characteristics of Scripture given, along with the six titles, and six benefits. All right? And I want you to grasp these. These are so marvelous. Number one, the law of the Lord is what? Perfect. Converting the soul. The first thing you want to understand then is that the Word of God is perfect. I wanted to really understand that word some months ago, so I decided to do a, a word study on the Hebrew term and chase it down through all the lexicons I could and really find out what it meant. And my conclusion after a whole day and a half of study was that it means perfect. 
exactly what it says. It means, to put it in another term, it means comprehensive. It means, and I guess maybe the best definition would be, all sided so as to cover completely all aspects of a thing. Scripture is absolutely comprehensive. It covers all aspects of a thing to the degree that the benefit is it is able to convert the soul. Now, what does that mean? The word convert means to transform. The word soul, nefesh, means the inner person. It's always translated soul, heart, self, or person in the Old Testament. It means the inner man. Now, let me pull that all together. The Word of God is so absolutely comprehensive that it is able to totally transform the whole person. That doesn't leave anything out, does it? What an incredible statement. The Word of God is so comprehensive, it covers all aspects of the total transformation of the inner man. Nothing left out. I'll give you an illustration of this. A man walked in my office some months ago, said, I need help. Sat down on the couch, down at the church, and said, I've got to tell you my problem. He introduced himself. He said, my name is Steve, and I'm a medical doctor. He said, but uh, you've got to know my background. I'm Jewish. I never have attended a church until six weeks ago when I came to Grace Community Church on a Sunday morning, and I've been here every week since. I just can't pull myself away. He said, that's the first I've ever been in a church in my life. All my friends are Jewish. All my heritage is Jewish. All my background is Jewish. My two children were just bar mitzvahed last month from my first wife. I'm not living with my first wife. I married a second wife. I'm not living with her. I'm living with a woman who's my lover. I don't even like her, but haven't got the guts to leave her and go back to my second wife. He said, but the worst part is, my profession is abortion. I'm an abortionist. He said, I kill babies for a living. Last year in my clinic, we did $9 million worth of abortions. He said, I don't do therapeutic abortions. I do abortions for any reason. And if a woman doesn't have a reason, I give her a reason. And he said, for six weeks in your church, you've been preaching on delivered to Satan. And if there's ever anybody in the earth who was delivered to Satan, it's me. I know I'm doomed to hell because of what I've done. Furthermore, he said, I'm absolutely miserable and unhappy and I'm continually seeing a psychoanalyst and I'm not getting any help at all. I can't stand the guilt of all of this. I don't know what to do about it. Can you help me? And I said to him, no, I can't help you. And he kind of sunk in his chair and I wanted him to feel a little more desperation. Then I said to him, but I know somebody who can. I know somebody who can. He said, you do? And I said, yes, Jesus Christ. I'll never forget what he said. He said, but I don't know who he is. But I don't know who he is. And then he went on to say to us, he's somebody we don't believe in. To us, he's somebody we don't know. We reject him. I said, would you like to know who Jesus Christ is? He said, I would. Here's what I want you to do. I reached over, took an NIV, New International Version, New Testament off my desk, opened it to the Gospel of John. I said, this is the Gospel of John. He wouldn't know the Gospel of John from Sheriff John. I mean, he had no clue. Coming from completely Jewish heritage, I said, I want you to take the Gospel of John home. This is all I want you to do. I want you to take the Gospel of John. I want you to read it this week, and I want you to keep reading it until you know who Jesus Christ is. And somebody might say, that's that all you gave him? Just the Bible? You mean you, you didn't give him some helps, some tapes, some studies, something? 
Just the Bible? You don't have to worry about the Bible. The Bible's like a lion. You don't defend a lion. You open the door, let it out. It'll take care of itself. <laughs> so I said, just read John. That's all I want you to do is read John, conclude who Jesus is. So Friday, this was on a Sunday afternoon. I was speaking with him before the evening service. The next Friday, I received a phone call in the office. He wanted to come in on Sunday. And so Sunday, he came at 4.30. He walked in, walked right by me like I wasn't even there, sat on the couch and dropped the Bible and said, I know who he is. I said, you do? He said, I do. I said, who is he? He said, I'll tell you one thing. He's not man. I said, really? Who is he? He said, he's God. I said, you a Jew are telling me that Jesus Christ is God? I said, how did you know that? He said, it's simple. It's right there in the Gospel of John. It's <laughs> exactly what he said. I said, amazing. Boy, how we lose trust in the Word, don't we? I said, well, what was it that convinced you? He said, well, look at the words that he said and look at the things that he done and, uh, that he had done. And no one could say those things and do those things unless he was God. And he was parroting back John's whole thesis. And I just smiled, and then he said this, I'll never forget. He said, and you know what else he did? And I said, no, what? <laughs> he said, he rose from the dead. I said, you don't mean it. You know. <laughs> he rose from the dead. And then I thought this was so great. He said, I'm a man of science. He said, I have to be convinced by empirical evidence. And I'll tell you, that resurrection from the dead was something. He said, what knocks me out is he did it fast. <laughs> I said, it really was fast, three days, but if you're reading it, it's about 30 seconds from the end of one chapter to the beginning of the next where he rises from the dead. I said to him, well, what does that have to say to you? He said, that means that, uh, that, means that God came into the world. I said, well, do you know why he came? He said, yep. I said, how do you know why he came? He said, because I like John so well, I read Romans. I said, what did you find out there? He came to die for my sin. And then he said to me, as soon as I clean up my life, I'm going to receive him. I said, I have a better idea. Receive him and let him clean your life up. He said, I like that idea. So we knelt on the couch and he opened his life to Christ. I said, what does this mean in your career? He said, well, I spent this afternoon writing my resignation letter to the abortion clinic. And when I get out of here, I'm going to call my second wife and bring her to church with me. Well, I called him last week to see how he's doing, and he's struggling a lot, but I just wanted you to know that the Word of God is perfect, able to totally transform the soul of a Jewish abortionist in one week, or in one split second, for that matter. Don't think the Word of God is inadequate. It isn't inadequate. And don't think it has to be subtle. I haven't been subtle yet in my life with the Word of God. Look at the second thing it says in verse 7. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The Word of God is sure. That means it's trustworthy. When it says something, you can bank on it, right? You can count on it. You can trust in it. It's absolutely sure. It is able to be believed. It is believable, trustworthy. You can open the Word of God and know that everything you read is exactly what it appears to be. If God says something is true, it's true. You can trust the Word of God. Boy, does that mean a lot. Do you realize how difficult it is for people in the world to find something they can trust? The Word of God you can trust. It's always sure. And what's the benefit of that? I love this. It makes wise the what? Simple. The word simple in Hebrew is a tremendous word. The root of the word simple is the word for an open door. 
A person with an with a brain with an open door, you know? Everything flies in and everything flies right back out. They have no discernment. Oh, whatever religion is wonderful. It just doesn't matter. We all are going the same way. You know, just in and out. You know, no ability to discern truth. No clue about what is right. No wisdom. No discernment. Naive, uninitiated, uninformed, undiscerning. And that's the way most people are in the world. They don't know truth and, and error. They don't know what's right and wrong. They don't know what values they really ought to nail down in their life and what things they ought to let go. The Word of God comes to the naive, undiscerning, simple, open-door-minded person and makes that person what? Wise. The word is shakam in the Hebrew. It means skilled in the matter of holy living. It's always used in reference to God. It takes a simple-minded person with no discernment and makes them able to live with skill in the spiritual dimension. Isn't that marvelous? And so when you're working with people who don't know things they ought to know and don't have wisdom and are naive in terms of spiritual reality, you can take them the Word of God and it can make them highly skilled in the matter of daily spiritual living. What a sufficient, what a sufficient word it is. Thirdly, he says in verse 8, the statutes of the Lord are right. Literally in the Hebrew, they provide a right path. If you want to know where to go in life, if you want to know how to walk, if you want to know what direction God wants you to take, the Word lays that path out and brings rejoicing to the heart. It not only can totally transform the soul, not only can make a simple-minded, naive, uninformed, and uninitiated person wise, it also brings joy to the heart because it gives you the path of life. And joy comes from not only knowing where you are, but knowing where you're what? Where you're going. The path is laid out. You're not wandering around in mystery. You know how to live. You know where to walk. You know the objectives of spiritual living. And the major goal and the path you pursue is the path of likeness to Jesus Christ. The statutes of the Lord then are right. Always right. Always laying down the right path, the right direction, the right way to go. So that you can know the joy that comes to one who walks in the will of God. That's why John said in 1 John 1, we write these things unto you that your joy may be what? May be full. And your joy will be full as you obey in walking in the path that God has laid down. That's where real joy comes. Satan wants you to believe that joy comes in disobedience. The truth is joy comes in obeying God. And fourthly, I wish we could spend more time, but we don't have it. Notice verse 8 again. The commandment of the Lord is clear. The best translation of that Hebrew term is clear. Enlightening the eyes. It's clear. You know, so many things in life are hard to understand. So many things in life are dark and muddy and difficult to understand and see. That's the way life is. Imagine if you didn't have the Bible. Imagine if you didn't know God. You didn't know Christ and you tried to figure out things in this world. You try to figure out why little children die. You try to figure out why war exists. You try to figure out why people get terrifying diseases and their life is snuffed out. Try to figure out why there's so much pain, so much sorrow, so much anxiety. And even the good things of life like love have the tendency to bring us the deepest pain because eventually we always lose the one we love, whether in death or whatever. 
You try to analyze the world, and if you didn't really have some kind of supernatural insight, you'd never be able to figure it out, and you can understand why people drink a lot. Or why they abandon themselves to material pleasures, or take drugs, or get involved in sexual orgies to the point where they're almost oblivious. Because they can't get past the darkness of life and the blackness of looking into the future. But on the other hand, if you know the Word of God, everything becomes clear. You know why you're here, you know where you came from, you know where you're going, you know what you're for. You understand life and death and time and eternity and heaven and hell and right and wrong. And everything is clear. You see, we're going through the world clear-headed about all of this. I'll tell you a story that illustrates this. In the end of summer, a family by the name of Romanowski, some of you who are in our church heard about it. family by the name of Romanowski, the parents of John and Nora Romanowski, they had uh, three children, two girls and a little boy, Kristen, Carolyn, and Kevin. The girls were 17, 15, and Kevin was 10. He's 10. They are missionaries to the Mormons in Brigham City, Utah, where he pastors a little Bible church and has for the last 11 years trying to reach Mormon people, a very hard ministry in Utah. You can imagine being in a city named after Brigham Young. Anyway, they came down here. They wanted to visit Grace Community Church and they wanted to visit the Master's College because he wanted his daughters to go here. They'd been in a little tiny church and they came down here for their summer vacation in their station wagon. They brought two unsaved foreign exchange students from Italy with them, hoping to lead them to Christ while they were together for the summer. So here came their three kids, the two others, and mom and dad. And John said to me, we came down there because we wanted to our kids to have a big church experience. They came from such a little church. And we wanted them to, to, to hear the, the choir at Grace and to sing the songs. And then we wanted them to, to see the Master's College because we wanted to send them there. And so on a Saturday, they came to the church. They looked around, had a nice time, came out to the college, viewed the college, <clears throat> went down Placerita Canyon, came to uh, Sierra Highway there. And John, just unthinking and not really concentrating, inadvertently pulled out against the red light. And a van was coming down the hill and hit his car. And instantly the two girls, Kristen and Carolyn, who were sitting in the back of the station wagon, were catapulted out of the window of the station wagon onto the pavement and killed on the spot. Kevin was put immediately into intensive care. The two foreign exchange students, one had internal surgery and the other one lost, I think, his spleen. The mom and dad were banged and beaten up. Uh, John had a glass eye. It exploded out of the socket. The car was burned to a crisp, including their possessions and their Bibles as well. And a wonderful day, an incredibly hopeful day, was turned into a holocaust of tragedy. Coming along the road, I think my son Mark found them and uh, called the paramedics and all, and they came and they were put in the hospital. Russ and Heidi Moore took John and Nora into their home and ministered to them for a couple of weeks, I guess, Russ, they were with you. I called John as I was going up to preach in Santa Barbara, and I said, John, what do you feel? I don't even know how you can explain what you feel. Imagine losing two of your daughters in a moment like that, and a family vacation is turned into a horror. He said, well, my first thought is that maybe it isn't true, and I'll wake up and it won't be a reality, but I know that isn't the case. And my second thought is this, isn't it wonderful that both Kristen and Carolyn knew the Lord Jesus Christ and they're now in His presence? 
He said, you know, I wanted them to have a big church experience. I just didn't think it would be this big. And I wanted them to be a part of a big choir, but just imagine they're in the choir of heaven. And then he said, isn't it wonderful that the Lord took them and not those two lost foreign exchange students who would have entered into eternity without Christ? Now, just offhand, folks, I'd say that's pretty clear thinking, wouldn't you? In the moment of horrible tragedy, that comes to someone who understands what this book teaches. You understand that? That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 119, I have hoped in thy word. I mean, we all live with that hope, don't we? I mean, we look at death and we say, hey, I know where that's going. Like Benjamin Franklin, he wrote his own epitaph. Here lies the body of Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book. Stripped of its lettering and gilding, it lies here foods for food for worms, but the work will not be lost, for it will appear once more in a new and more elegant edition revised and corrected by the author. He had the hope of a future life. The Bible gives you that. You ask yourself what people want. They want a transformed life. Even people who don't know God wish they were different. They want wisdom. They want happiness. They want to understand what's going on around them. Here it is right here. God says it's all in this book. Then in verse 9, just quickly I want to add two others. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. You know what that means? What that says to me? The Word of God is clean. That is, it's without flaw, without blemish, without spot, without error. And therefore, it endures how long? Forever. The only things that don't decay are the things that are not touched by what? By sin. And because the Word of God is not touched by sin, it always endures. I remember being in a debate with a homosexual, which is not a particularly happy occasion, but if you've got to be around one, you might as well debate. So here I was sitting in a, in a room in Hollywood, and there was a guy from a magazine supposedly moderating this debate. The guy's name was Ralph Blair. He's the head of a thing of a homosexual, an evangelical homosexual group in New York. And uh, I said, in, in the process of this discussion, I said, well, what do you do with what the Bible says about homosexuality as a sin and a perversion? He said, oh, come on. He said. Um, everybody knows, he said, that the Bible is psychologically unsophisticated. Everybody knows that the Bible is primitive in its sociological theory. Everybody knows you could not go to an ancient document like this and expect to deal with 20th century contemporary social problems. The Bible has to stay in its own environment. It needs to be updated with a contemporary understanding of this phenomenon. My response to that was the very profound word, baloney. <laughs> the Word of God is so pure and so clean and so without error that it endures the same how long? Forever. It doesn't need update. There are no revised versions of the intention of God's message. It is the same. It never changes. It never wavers. And I'm telling you, whatever time you live in, whatever situation you live in, whatever culture you live in, it is eternally relevant. And when some pea-brain, pusillanimous, hammered-down, disconnected, stovepipe, pea-brain person comes along, 
button and says you got to update the Bible, you can just shut off his water at that point by taking him to Psalm 19. All right. Well, I don't want to get any further into that. Verse 9, the last point. Verse 9. The ordinances of the Lord are true. Isn't that wonderful? Everything in the Bible is what? True. I mean, there's no book in the world but this one that can say everything in it is true. Mine come close, but they're not quite where the Bible is, nor are anybody else's, right? The Bible is true. Boy, what a great thought that is. The Bible is true. You ever analyze how desperately our society searches for truth and how little truth they really know? Really something. It is true. Consequently, look at this. The statement is, it is altogether right. What that means is, the sum of all of this is that the Bible is comprehensively able to produce rightness. Whatever you are to be, whatever God wants to shape you into, all spiritual dimensions being considered, the Bible is sufficient. What a great statement. The New Testament counterpart to this psalm, you know very well, even though you may not know you know it, I'll remind you of it. The New Testament counterpart to this psalm goes like this. All Scripture, 2 Timothy 3, is inspired by God and is what? Profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be what? Perfect. Completely furnished unto most good works. Is that what it says? Unto what? All good works. Is the Bible sufficient? Is the Word of God sufficient for all spiritual dimensions? Yes. Now I'll go back to Psalm 19 and follow as we wrap this up. This is really exciting. Since the Word of God is sufficient, I'm going to give you five things that ought to be recognized. Since it is sufficient, number one, you ready for this? Verse 10. It is our most valuable possession. It you hold in your hand the most valuable thing in the world. It is more valuable than gold, verse 10. More to be desired than gold, yea, than what? Much fine gold. It is the most valuable thing. I had an incredible experience this week in Chicago. I have a friend who has a Bible collection. When I say a Bible collection, I mean a Bible collection. He may have the oldest New Testament in existence in the world from the fourth century. But he had one Bible there that brought tears to my eyes. I took it in my hands and I leafed my way through it. It was a Bible printed in England in the 1500s. When Bloody Mary came into England and terrorized the evangelicals and the Protestants, she murdered all of the, the Christians she could and her her approach was to spill their blood and then take their Bibles, and they were bigger Bibles than we have, great big Bibles like this, and then collect that blood and dip the Bible deep into the blood of the martyr. And my friend has a Bible, the top third of which the entire thing is totally covered with the blood of the one who owned it. 
And I went through that Bible page after page and I saw where it was well worn and where water stains had touched it and where his thumb had worn the edges bare. And they've done tests on the paper and they have separated out the elements of blood that are on every single page of that Bible. And the man gave his life because this was his most valuable possession and his blood stains it to proven. Nothing was as valuable as that. That he was willing to die for. There was no price laid on his Bible. He gave his life for it. Secondly, it's not only our most valuable possession, it's our most valuable pleasure. Verse 10 says, Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. The Bible ought to be the sweetest thing to you. It ought to be your most treasured moment to spend time in God's Word. I tell you, one of the joys of my life, in fact, the great joy of my ministry is that I spend so many hours a week in God's Word. I love it. I cherish it. It is the greatest pleasure. Thirdly, the Word of God is not only our most valuable possession and pleasure, but it is our most valuable protection. Verse 11, do you see it? He says, in addition to this, by the word of God is thy servant, what? Warned. It's the Bible that protects us from error. It's the Bible that protects us from sin. It's that I have set the word of God in my heart that I might not sin. That's what David said. The word planted in the heart becomes your most valuable protection. And fourthly, it is your most valuable source of profit. Because in keeping of the Word of God, verse 11 says, there's a great reward. It's going to bring about the greatest reward in life and eternity. Your obedience to the Word of God will reward you forever and ever and ever and ever. And then finally, it is our most valuable purifier. The Word of God is a cleanser. David cries out, who can understand his errors? It's almost as if he says, when I know what I know about the Scripture, when I know what I know about God, what in the world do I do with sin? Why do I have anything to do with that? How can I understand why I do that? And then he cries, cleanse me from secret sins. Those sort of unpremeditated ones. And then keep me back also, verse 13, from the presumptuous ones, those premeditated ones. Lord God, in light of Your Word, cleanse me. Don't let sin have dominion over me, and then shall I be upright and be innocent from the great transgression, which is a, a Hebraism for apostasy. Keep me back from moving toward what characterizes an apostate. Purify me. I, I promise you, if you expose your life regularly to the Word of God, it's a cleanser. It's a purifier. Our most valuable possession, our most valuable pleasure, our most valuable protection, profit, and purifier. So what should be our response? Verse 14. What should be our response? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. My response to the Word of God is this. O God, let my words and my thoughts be pleasing to you. What kind of words and what kind of thoughts would those be? Listen to Joshua 1.8. I'm going to close with the scripture, but listen, because this is the sum of what we've said. Joshua 1.8, the book of the law, the scripture, 
shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate therein day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written therein, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. You want a happy life? You want a prosperous life? You want good success? You want a transformed life? You want wisdom? You want happiness? You want clarity? You want something you can trust in every culture and every day? You want to be comprehensively right? Then go to the Word, meditate on it day and night, and do what it says. Now, if the words of your mouth and the meditations of your heart are to be acceptable, then they will be words and meditations based on what? On the Word of God. On the Word of God. Young people, one of the things we want to be committed to at the Master's College, and not collectively any more than individually, but every one of our lives need to be built on the confident premise that the Word of God is sufficient for every area of spiritual living, and we cannot let our culture, even our Christian culture, take away the strength of that conviction. Let's bow together in prayer.